into the local angle right here on FanDuel TV. I'm JJ Janjistremski, the host of New York, New York, where right now our city is absolutely a buzzing with New York Knickerbocker fever. And I know the Knicks lost on Saturday night to LeBron, to Anthony Davis, to Austin Reeves, to D'Angelo Russell, and the Cavalcade of Los Angeles Lakers three-point shooters. I don't care about that. Right now, I am the most amped, I am the most fired up that I have been in a long, long time when it comes to the basketball team that is near and dear to my heart. Yeah, I'm going to say it. This is the most excited I've been about a New York Knicks team since the early 2000s. And that should speak volumes. Folks, I'm a Syracuse guy. Yes, I'm a Carmelo Anthony guy. This team is better than the Carmelo team from a few years ago. And you know what? I think Jalen Brunson is going to go down as a better Nick than Carmelo Anthony. And what you saw Jalen Brunson do over the course of this week, and really what you have seen Jalen Brunson do over the last year and a half since putting on the uniform, he has transformed himself into an all-NBA player. He has transformed himself into an all-star. And the interaction that he had with Alan Hahn of the MSG Network right after Thursday night's come-from-behind win against the Indiana Pacers, it kind of sums up why New York City and why people like myself have fallen in love with the overachiever out of Villanova. The guy is born to play basketball. Mike Breen said that the other day on the broadcast. It couldn't be more accurate. Jalen Brunson's all ball. It's no BS. It's no nonsense. It's about getting better. It's about making your teammates better. It's about elevating a franchise. This is what he has been able to do in a year and a half. Remember, and I was one of the same knuckleheads wondering if the Knicks had overpaid for the rising postseason star stepping up in the absence of Luka Doncic a few years ago when the Mavericks took down Utah and the Mavericks made it all the way to the Western Conference Finals. Love Brunson and Villanova. Never thought he'd be this good. It's okay to admit that we're wrong. I know a lot of people have a hard time doing it. I, from time to times, will never go. I'll never let go. I feel like I'm in Titanic. I'll never let go, Jack. I'll never let go. But in, in, in all seriousness, you got to admit when you're wrong. I am admitting that I was beyond wrong in questioning whether or not Jalen Brunson was an overpay. Because guess what? He's a legitimate underpay. Look at his point guard contract. Compare him to the other top 15, 20 players in the sport. And what you will acknowledge and what you will realize is that the Knicks at the moment have themselves a bargain on a guy who, let's be honest, should be starting in the NBA All-Star game. And I had to do a little homework research as far as the voting process. It's fans, it's media, it's coaches. I mean, it's it's Fugazi. That's that's what it comes down to me. I don't, I don't care how they drew up. I don't care how they figured it out. They figured it out wrong to have Jalen Brunson on the outside looking in uh, in Indianapolis starting in the All-Star game or not starting for that matter. But he's a part of a team that won nine straight. He's a part of a team that is trying to position themselves here in the Eastern Conference to go maybe a little bit deeper into the playoffs than what they did a year ago. And look, it's still early February. We have a trade deadline that's coming up on Thursday. 
We're going to see how injuries shake out. And obviously, injuries play an enormous role in this thing to how April and May and, dare I say, June are going to look. Do I think Boston is hands down, clear cut, the best team in the conference? Yes. Yes, I do. Especially if they have a healthy Kristaps Porzingis. But Porzingis is going to be right. I mean, Porzingis could roll out of bed and be out four to six weeks. That's his M.O. It has been his M.O. since he's been playing in the league. So that's something you got to watch. Milwaukee. And by the way, how is Doc Rivers coaching the Eastern Conference in the All-Star game? Is there a bigger joke than having a coach who was literally doing podcasts on the rigor and doing television? Now he's coaching the All-Star game? Come on, man. I don't even like Joe Mazzulla. He's the number one CD. He can't coach the game. Tibbs. Why can't Tibbs coach the game? I know Tibbs probably would rather go and watch game film than be an all-star weekend. Uh, if you ask Tibbs, I'm sure he'd probably tell you that too. But come on. What uh, on planet Earth is the NBA doing? But Milwaukee, listen, they're big. They're star-studded. They got Giannis. They got Lillard. They got Middleton and Lopez in pedigree. They lost in the first round of Miami. Doc Rivers doesn't win playoff series, at least beyond the first round. Can I tempt myself with the idea that the Knicks could go to the Eastern Conference Finals? Yeah, I, I might have gone down that rabbit hole a lot over the last couple of days. It's not a given. Of course, it's not a given. They need things to break a certain way. They need Julius Randle to get back and actually be a much better postseason performer than he's been. But the Knicks defend at a high level. They moved the basketball great. Ananobi, you got to get him back on the court. You really have missed him the last few days. You see what he has brought to the team since he's come over from the Toronto Raptors? Yeah, I'm there in a dream when it comes to a basketball team that yeah has not been in an Eastern Conference final since, wait for this, Patrick Ewing's last year in a Nick uniform, which was the... 99-2000 season. Losing that Easter Conference final to Reggie, Rick Smiths, Jalen Rose, and the Indiana Pacers. Man, I, I can't imagine what my life will be like if we we're talking about the Knicks and the Easter Conference finals. I'm there in a dream. You know what? It's early February. We still got another couple weeks dealing with terrible, miserable, dreadful weather. Even though it was pretty nice, by the way, on a uh, Sunday in New York City. If we had a lot more days like this in the month of February, it wouldn't be so intolerable, but I am dreaming big. And the reason you can dream big is Jalen Brunson. As far as what the Knicks are going to look to do with the trade deadline, to me, it's pretty simple. They need offense coming off of their bench. How are they going to go about addressing that? You know all the names. Listen, the rumor mill now, it's so saturated and watered down with information that these great NBA insiders, they know what's going to go down usually before we know, or the teams, for that matter, know what's going to go down because they got sources with agents and, and GMs plugged in up the wazoo. So you know the names. It's Clarkson, if the Knicks are willing to pay the price. It's Bruce Brown, who basically was openly campaigning to be a Nick the other day when the Raptors played uh, at Madison Square Garden. And I think he would fit very, very nicely on this team. Do they want to make a play for Brogdon? Do they call the Chicago Bulls about DeMar DeRozan? Like, there are a lot of questions the Knicks have to figure out between now and Thursday, but I do think they'll add a body. 
they have a lot of draft picks at their disposal to go and make a move. And I think from what I've seen so far, this team warrants the idea of going and making a move. So city has got Nick Fever, even after a loss Saturday night against the Los Angeles Lakers. Got to get some bodies back on the floor. But, I mean, this basketball team is just an absolute pleasure to watch. And trust me, I've seen a whole lot of crummy teams. I've seen a whole lot of seasons where they have been over and done with and irrelevant by the time you hit the month of February. So it's fair to say it fires me up. We'll be off to Las Vegas. Uh, Ring of Wise guys will be there. Uh, Raheem Palmer and myself with East Coast Bias will be there as we move closer and closer to the Niners and the Kansas City Chiefs. And it sure seems like every Joe Public person you talk to when I was at the Rewatchable show on Friday, when I walk around my golf course, when I go anywhere in town, everybody likes the Chiefs. And listen, my track record this postseason, you should be like, well, JJ likes one side. I probably should go the other way and I'm going to have success. Yeah, you'd be right about that. But guess what? I'm probably going to be doubling, tripling, quadrupling down and hopefully capping off my Super Bowl and a flourish to the NFL season. So I'm not going to unveil that pick yet here on the local angle. I still got a few more days and you're going to check out all the stuff we're doing here on FanDuel TV. Uh, you'll get a sense on the East Coast Bias show and on Ringer Wise Guys where I'm going to be siding. But, you know, the odds makers in FanDuel, there's a reason why San Francisco is favored in the game. Like that line does not come out of nowhere. But if you talk to people, you would maybe think otherwise. Major buyer beware. I've seen this before in the Super Bowl. The Chief Bucks Super Bowl comes to mind a few years ago. The Carolina Denver Super Bowl comes to mind. Just saying. Just saying. So looking forward to getting out to Vegas. We're going to have a rocking week across the board. Now, we always get involved where viewers and listeners of New York, New York, and viewers here at the local angle can uh, hit me up. And you want to do that throughout the course of the week, you can at 917-382-1151. Uh, my esteemed producer, Stefan, has a voicemail for us. Let's hear it, Stefan. What up, JJ? Just want to hear a handicap for picks. be for Monday. we got a college basketball game. I'm going to go to Virginia, minus the five over Miami. So we're going to go to Virginia, minus the five. Let's see if we got a family play on this. And everyone can follow all my daily plays on Twitter at Jeff Money. Okay, JJ, I'm out of here. Let's go. Let's go, Jeff Money. Virginia with a big win the other day against Clemson. You have Miami, who came from behind against Virginia Tech, and they ended up covering a number and covered it in a big way. I couldn't believe it in the high noon game. You know, I think Virginia is probably the right side. They're at home, too, in the game. Line opened at four. It's now up to five. Uh, you got a family play, Jeff Money. I would ride with the Cavaliers there in that spot. And I think that line is pretty sharp right around five. And you have Kansas, who I was actually dumb enough to fade, uh, who was a home dog against Houston. Now they are five and a half point favorites against Kansas State. I love a rivalry game and I love getting points in a rivalry game. So I will be on the Kansas State team getting those five and a half points. Give me the Wildcats there and give me Virginia. We'll ride with you laying the five kick off a Monday of College Hoops. We got a lot more coming your way here on the local angle. We'll check in up in Boston. We'll check in with the Windy City in Chicago. All that more is coming up right here on FanDuel TV. 
Shiel Kapadia here from the Ringers Philly special. All right, few topics we need to get to this week. Let's start with the worst news, and that would be Joel Embiid's injury. Embiid playing on a sore right knee last week against the Golden State Warriors did not look like himself. You're thinking, why is this guy out there? He's missed a couple games in a row. Why don't they just put him on the shelf, let him get healthy for the postseason? But it's the Sixers. They do not do things in a normal, rational way. So he ends up playing against the Golden State Warriors, obviously injured, obviously hampered, uh, with a sore right knee. Then four minutes left, Jonathan Kaminga lands on Embiid's left knee, meniscus injury. That's all we know as of now. We don't know the extent of it. We don't know how they're going to treat it. We don't know if it's going to be surgery, if it's going to be rest, how long he's going to be out, if he comes back, what does it look like? But obviously, let's not sugarcoat this. This is an obvious season crusher, okay? The best case scenario is that he takes some time off, returns. Maybe you have him for part of the regular season. Maybe you have him for the playoffs, But even then, like, what is Joel Embiid going to look like having to play through a meniscus injury? This is a guy with one of the highest usage rates in the entire NBA. This is a guy who's averaging 35 points per game. Like, 70% of Joel Embiid is not going to get you where you need to go. So, uh, again, this is just the most Sixery thing possible. It's like this era of the Sixers has been exhausting. You know, they were having a fun season. I was saying, all right, you don't have to put too many expectations into this season. You traded James Harden. This is kind of a transition year. And it was fun on a night-to-night basis. They were, when they had Embiid, they've been a fun basketball team. But now you're not going to have it most likely for an extended period of time. And you're most likely looking at uh, another early playoff exit. So, he shouldn't have played in that game. It was also a freak injury. I mean, listen, that injury could have happened anytime he came back. So I don't want to blame it just on that. So look ahead to the trade deadline. I mean, what are you going to add somebody at the trade deadline and bank on Embiid coming back and being healthy and making a playoff run? No, you can't make moves with this season, with the 2023-2024 season in mind. It just absolutely would make no sense. So now to me... If like that happens, if Embiid comes back and looks good, that's great. That's a pleasant surprise. But you're looking ahead to 2024, 2025. And whether that means you you move guys, whether that means you acquire guys who are under contract beyond this season, those are the questions they have to be asking themselves. So next season, it's, I hate to say it. It's a bummer to say this in February that it's more about next season, but that's the case. And next season's going to be Joel Embiid's age 30 season. You still have Tyrese Maxey. You still have Nick Nurse. You figured some things out this season. Uh, y- your record is fantastic when Embiid's been on the floor, but it has to be about, all right, when Embiid is healthy, what does this thing look like? So that's where we're at with the Sixers. A bummer before the All-Star break, before the trade deadline, although I guess it's good it happened before the trade deadline. If you made a move to compete this year and then you and then Embiid suffers the injury, then all of a sudden you're wondering why you did that. So there you go. See, I can't be accused of uh, of not being bright and sunny. It's somewhere there in the personality. All right, so that's Sixers. Topic number two. Eagles continue to have a very fascinating offseason. You know, we did a mailbag recently on the Ringers Philly special And I was very surprised at how many questions we got about Jalen Hurts. 
and there were questions about a couple of different topics. But people are wondering about like what he looked like last year. Was that regression and he's going to bounce back? What about the body language? What about the leadership? Like this is all, it's just a reminder how quickly things change. In the NFL a year ago, we're talking about a guy who was top three for MVP, playing in the Super Bowl, going toe-to-toe with Patrick Mahomes in that game. I mean, really one of the best performances you're going to see from a losing quarterback in the Super Bowl in recent memory, maybe in NFL history. I mean, the Eagles offense was fantastic uh, in that game. But now here we are a year later, and there's questions about Jalen Hurts. Listen, I think it's okay to look at some of the body language stuff and say, what's going on there? At the same time, I'd also caution, don't read too much into it. When the Eagles are winning games, we look at that and we say, oh, he's even keeled. Nothing rattles him. He, they need is what they need. Nick Sirianni, the head coach, is volatile. You need your quarterback to be more even keeled. That's what we were all saying about Jalen Hurts a year ago. So the guy has to be authentic. We can't then just turn around and say, oh, they're losing. Now he should completely change how he acts. If you do that, everyone sees it. You look like a phony it's not going to go well. That's what happens in NFL locker room. So would you like to see, you know, leadership where the guy can rally the troops and you don't have the type of collapse you saw at the end of last season? Yes, absolutely. But in terms of the body language stuff, like he leads how he leads, what's real to him, uh, connecting with teammates, all those things. So I wouldn't read too much into it. Now, in terms of his actual play, that regressed. In 2023, there's no doubt about it. At the same time, I think the coaching staff let him down. I think that was obvious on film. I think that was obvious if you were watching live. I think that's obvious in the statistics. So I think what the Eagles did a little bit, they bring in offensive coordinator Kellen Moore, and I think they want to get a read on a couple of people here. One of those people is Jalen Hurts. You know, Kellen Moore led top five offenses when he was in Dallas, um, you know, with Dak Prescott. Twice out of four years, they had a top five offense. So you have a coordinator who's capable of putting the quarterback in a position to succeed. You have a good offensive line. You have A.J. Brown. You have uh, Devontae Smith. You have Dallas Goddard. Like There are pieces in place that would tell you Jalen Hurts should be capable of bouncing back in 2024 and listen Jalen Hurts has been a guy who he doesn't just look at his weakness weaknesses and you know sweep them under the rug I mean he generally addresses them in the offseason so uh, I think it's a big year for Hurts I think the pieces are around him and I think if I were saying now I would think that he would bounce back in 2024 and the other person who's in focus in Philadelphia and will continue to be is Nick Sirianni the head coach of the Eagles. There was a report uh, last week from Greg Bedard in the boss of the Boston Sports Journal. He did a radio interview. He was down in Mobile, Alabama. He made it clear that this was just kind of rumory type talk. But he mentioned that you know there were some people saying that Eagles at least had some type of connection to Bill Belichick, or whether it was real, not something they had discussed internally, whatever. There was some type of connection there, and I don't know whether that's real or not. To be quite honest, you know, if all the reports about Bill Belichick that he wants personnel control, he wants to be able to run an organization his way, that's not going to happen in Philadelphia with owner Jeffrey Lurie and with GM Howie Roseman. However, I was thinking about this, and it doesn't totally matter whether it's real or not because this is kind of where Nick Sirianni is going to be for the months ahead and for the 20. 20- 
24 season. I mean, look at what they, the decisions they made in the off season. They basically told him we are stripping you of your control of your command with this offense because it wasn't good enough last year and you underachieved. And if you agree to that, then cool. You're still the head coach. If you don't agree to that, then who knows? There might have been other plans for the Eagles this offseason. So you're going to have reports like this with Belichick. You're going to have questions about, man, they brought in Vic Fangio, you know, a former head coach, his defensive coordinator. They brought in Kellen Moore, a guy they interviewed for the head coaching job a few years ago before, by the way, they hired Nick Sirianni. So Sirianni is just in this weird spot where it's so obvious that he is coaching for his job in 2024. Now, maybe it works out. Maybe he does a, fit, a good job. Maybe they make a big playoff run. Maybe they make a Super Bowl run next season. Maybe changing the coordinators helps. Maybe everything looks more buttoned up, more organized. That's possible. And then Sirianni keeps his job in 2025 and beyond, and you try to win a Super Bowl. However, the theme of this offseason is kind of like one more chance for Sirianni, where if this team starts off 2-4 and four, um, next offseason, if they don't play well, the questions uh, are only going to become more frequent. The noise is only going to grow louder with stuff like this Belichick uh, rumor that we heard in recent weeks. So this wasn't like a vote of confidence for Nick Sirianni from the organization this offseason. This was, uh, can you get it done if we position you for success and take stuff off your plate. So that's something to keep in mind as we look at all the moves they make this offseason, trades, free agency, the draft, other rumors you hear about what the organization, what the brass are thinking. Uh, that's the frame to view it through with Nick Sirianni. All right, those are the big topics in Philly sports this week. Remember, you can listen to the Ringers Philly special on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. Good stuff from the Philly special crew. We come back. We'll head up to Boston. The Celtics look like a team destined for the NBA Finals. But is there maybe a missing piece that could be added between now and Thursday? Brian Barrett off the pike will tell us next. getting ready for the trade deadline and the reality is for the Celtics they've already done most of their heavy lifting right you think back to two years ago at the deadline they had a huge move where they traded for Derek White and he's been top five and plus minus each of the last two seasons he's been a stud for the Celtics so certainly they knocked that one out of the park a couple of years ago and he's having his best season this year part of that of course is Marcus Smart isn't on the team anymore so he gets more opportunities to run the offense then in the offseason, the Celtics, of course, they made the huge move to bring in Kristaps Porzingis. Porzingis on the season, 1.14 points per possession in the post. That's the best in the NBA. So he's literally the most efficient post scorer in the entire league, okay? And Jason Tatum, by the way, just the other day, mentioned that part of the reason that Porzingis helps them so much is if you go back to the playoff series against the Heat, the Heat were switching everything. And Tatum admitted they had trouble beating switching defenses. And now with Porzingis, you can't switch a guard onto Porzingis because he's too big. He could just score over that guy in the post or at the elbow area, wherever he gets the ball. So that was obviously the huge add in the offseason. And then Drew Holiday became available. 
And he's been outstanding in a smaller offensive role. He's taking, what, five less shots per game, but he's still shooting north of 40% from three. And he's been so good defensively for the Celtics that you can do so many different things with him on that end of the floor. Like, he's the main guy in that zone where he plays in the middle of the zone where the Celtics have been really good when they want to incorporate that. And he's covered big guys. He's covered guards. He's covered all over the court. So he's been awesome. So really, when you think about it, the Celtics... You look at their top six and you're saying, okay, you have Tatum, you have Jalen, you have White, you have Holiday, you have Porzingis, and you have Al. So you're pretty much set in terms of your top six. Nobody in the league has a better top six. That's why the Celtics right now are still the favorites at FanDuel to win the NBA championship. And you really can't upgrade any of those spots, okay? The biggest thing with the Celtics is just, hey, can they get over the hump by the additions they've already made, the Drew Holidays, the Kristaps Porzingis, are those the pieces that'll help Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown win that championship, which they've been very close to getting to over the past few years? So those questions are going to be solved internally, not externally, like a lot of other teams have to add pieces to get to the Celtics level. The Celtics don't need to add pieces, really, not big pieces, at, at least. So what we're looking at is sort of a minor move to upgrade your bench, right? Now, with Al, as we mentioned, he's a top six guy. You're not upgrading his spot, and you need him in playoff matchups. He's basically the best defender in the NBA against Giannis, right? I mean, maybe OG Ananobi will prove to be that guy in the playoffs this year, but Al has been that guy for the past few years. And then you look at a guy like, say, for example, Sam Hauser. He entered the week top 12 in catch-and-shoot made threes. He's ninth in the NBA in threes per 36 minutes hit. So he's certainly not a guy <laughs> that you're going to be looking to upgrade over as well, you think about it, teams try to sort of go at him defensively, but the Celtics have actually been better on the floor with him than off the floor defensively. And you may not think that, right? Because Hauser is not known for his defense, but he's not easy to take advantage of because he's six foot eight, right? Like you can go at small guards. It's more difficult to say, hey, we're going to go after a wing. And then we talked about Porzingis solving their offensive issues, and Hauser can help out with that too when you get in a rut because last year Joe didn't trust him all the time in the postseason because for whatever reason, and the whole rotation was weird last postseason with him and Grant. Is Grant going to play? Is Hauser going to play? But anyway, he helps your spacing. Like when you get in a rut, he can go out there and hit threes. And in the past, we've seen teams try to zone the Celtics in the postseason, like Miami's done at times. He's somebody that can be a zone buster. So right there, you look at it and you say, okay, what does this team really need? Uh, another big? But the reality is Cornette has been pretty good as a third big. He provides offensive rebounding. The Celtics' offensive rebounding percentage climbs up by 7.4 percentage points with Cornette on the floor than off the floor. That's in the 97th percentile via cleaning the glass. <laughs> so they're like one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the league when Cornette's out there. So with Porzingis, Al, Cornette, Keita, all those guys can give you regular season minutes. Of course, like Porzingis and Al are going to give you major minutes in the postseason. Well, I mean, those guys are studs, but you get the point. It's just yeah, you could maybe add a big, but the other spot you would look at in terms of the top eight players is Pritchard or the top nine players, I should say. The Celtics have actually been 6.1 uh, points per possession, better with Pritchard on the court than off the court. And we've seen te teams at times, especially in the postseason, they'll mismatch hunt, they'll go after Pritchard. Jimmy Butler did this in the playoffs, as we all know. And look, he's a good defensive player. Pritchard's not a bad defensive player. He gets around screens. He's good putting pressure on the ball, but he's just small. He's diminutive in stature. So at times, when you get into a playoff series and the rest of the guys on the floor are 
Drew Holiday, who is a beast for his position, and say, it's Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and it's Al Horford. Like, <laughs> you're going to go at Pritchard. You're going to try to get Pritchard switched on to your offensive player because the rest of those guys have all been proven defenders. And Jalen's been a better defensive player this year than he's been at any point in his career. Okay, so if you were saying, hey, where is the place we could upgrade? It would probably be there. But is that person playing major minutes? Like during the regular season, I want a lot of Pritchard minutes. He's been a really good player for this team, right? And he's shooting north of 40% from three. So the one thing that I think you could look at is what Brad Stevens sort of alluded to. You can never have too many wings. And he said a couple of weeks ago that they'd look at maybe adding another wing. And he said that could come internally. So that means, hey, could Brissett give you more minutes? That's somebody that I would certainly at least try to give him more playing time because I think he boosts their offense in terms of not the efficiency of the offense, but he certainly boosts the activity level. He's really good getting after the offensive glass. Now, we all know he has his limitations as a shooter. He's south of 30% from deep. He's never been a good shooter. So maybe the Celtics could go in that direction where they do add a wing. The challenge with the Celtics is, well, they're a second apron team. So they have the Grant Williams trade exception. They could put a couple of contracts together, but they're not adding any big money to this roster. And like I said, it's a good problem to have that they have this top six because they really don't need to add like a big time salary to this team to help them. But you're looking at candidates like John Conchar from Memphis. You're looking at Chetty Osmond from the Spurs, those type of guys. Osmond shooting what? North of 37% from deep this season. Conchar per 36 is 8.2 rebounds, 3.3 assists. If you wanted to go the big man route, it would be maybe Isaiah Stewart where, and the boss Bill Simmons has mentioned this before, he's a guy that could give them some toughness. He's 13 and 6 per 36 minutes. Now he's been dealing with an ankle sprain lately, but if you did want to get the big man insurance, so to speak, and take some minutes off some of these guys that have been banged up throughout the season, that's the way you could go. But it's that type of move. It's Conchar, it's Osman, it's Isaiah Stewart. Like those are the type of guys that you can expect the Celtics to be in the market for it like something similar to last last year where they added Mike Muscala they wanted a center that could stretch the floor Muscala never really played for that much I mean he had that one game where he played like I want to say like 46 minutes he played like in an overtime game but after that he really wasn't a contributor but it's worth a shot I mean if he hit it would have been a great ad for the Celtics so it's fine it's not like you gave up much for him and so it'll be more similar to that than like the big time deal that we saw a couple of years ago with Derek White And to be fair, I just want to be fair before we get to this point. I'm not going to be upset if the Celtics don't do anything, right? If they just sit back and say, hey, our roster is good enough and we don't like what's out there on the market, I'm fine with it. You also are going to have the buyout market as too. So if they decided, hey, we're going to keep our powder dry, it would be fine because they're still going to have the best team of the NBA unless there's some huge blockbuster trade that we don't see coming. So the biggest thing is you have the necessary role players around Tatum and Brown to win a championship. So really, if you think about this, the biggest question I think the Celtics have as we approach the deadline is not so much who they're going to add. It's, hey, can somebody upgrade enough around the Celtics in the East and maybe even the West as well that would frighten you, especially in the Eastern Conference? And if you look around like the Celtics, in, like in terms of the contenders after the Celtics, the teams like the Bucks, Miami, all these teams... The Knicks, all these teams that are trying to compete with the Celtics, like who are the guys that could really threaten the Celtics in terms of guys that you would say, okay, I'd be scared if that guy goes to an Eastern Conference team. DeJounte Murray's the big name that's out there. It feels like he's going to end up going to the Western Conference, and I'm not really concerned about him because, yeah, he's a good player, but remember, he was too small for Tatum or Brown in that playoff series. So he really, like, 
your two best players are not going to be bothered by DeJounte Murray in a series. So that is not a guy that would concern me. Dorian Finney-Smith, I think, would be like an underrated good move for one of these East contenders because, and the Celtics couldn't get there salary-wise. Like, I'd, lo- I'd love Dorian Finney-Smith, and we're talking about these wings like Osman and Conchar. Finney-Smith would be perfect. It just, he makes too much money for the Celtics to be able to acquire. You're not bringing him in. He's taking, what, 5.5 threes per game, and he's shooting north of 38%. He, he's legitimately a 3 and D wing. Like, that's a guy that, if a team added him, would be like, okay, that's a guy that, now, I'm not saying that Tatum and Brown wouldn't get their numbers, but that's a guy they can look at and say, okay, that's a nice move for another team. And the Nets are in a weird spot where they should make some moves, but I don't think they're going to do anything crazy. Like, Mikhail Bridges' name has been out there. If he gets moved, it's going to cost a ton for a team to acquire him. So I don't see him moving. And then you start to think about some of these other guys. Alex Caruso, one of the best guard defenders in the NBA. I mean, and he's shooting the ball well, 40%, north of 40% from deep this season. That would be a nice ad for a team that can certainly, he can put ball pressure on guys. He's an exceptional shooter. Imagine if the Celtics could, some, now the Celtics can't get him, but imagine if they could where you have Derek White, Drew Holiday, and then you could throw out Alex Caruso. Like, he's such a pest. He can hit threes. Like, that would be incredible if you had those three. Now, obviously, he can't do it. So, one interesting name to me is Malcolm Brogdon. It appears he's going to get moved. And he recently said about his trade from the Celtics, he did an interview with The Athletic, He said, I was there for a year, won the sixth man, and they shipped me out of town. So I didn't feel valued there. Here, I feel valued. So I think he's a little bit over the top with that. It's like, well, they got your holiday, Malcolm Brogdon. Like, that's part of the reason, okay? Like, they got a better player than you. But I would say this about Brogdon. He was low-key really good for the Celtics in the playoffs. Before he injured the arm in the Heat series, the previous 14 games to that, He was 28 minutes a game, 15 points. He hit 32 of 73 of his three-point attempts, 43.8%. And we always talk about Tatum going down in that game seven. To me, they could have really used Brogdon in that game. So if Brogdon gets to one of these Eastern Conference teams, I think he's going to be motivated to go at the Celtics. And he is a problem. Like He's difficult to guard at times when you get into the postseason because he's not afraid to go ISO. Like One of the issues I had with Brogdon at times, I thought he shot too much. So that would be interesting if he got to a team for sort of the revenge factor, getting back in the Eastern Conference. So to me, though, to put a bow on this whole thing, the Celtics trading deadline, to me, it's more about what other teams do to try to get to the Celtics than the moves the Celtics actually make at the deadline. The Celtics, as they are currently constructed, have the best team in the NBA, have the best chance that they've ever had in this Tatum-Brown era to win a championship. The question now is, can they finally get over the hump? And can they finally get that Larry O'Brien trophy with Tatum and Jalen Brown as the main piece. Good stuff from Brian. When we return, we head to Chicago. No Zach Levine. Does it mean a teardown is coming for the mediocre Chicago Bulls? Jason Goff, full go. Join us next on The Local Anchor. to episode 349 of the full gold podcast with jason gar presented to you by the good people at fan duel and of course brought to you by the ringer and spotify is the gang shout out to the 
FanDuel TV folks. This is the local angle. Welcome on in. We do this thing every Sunday, every Tuesday, every Thursday. And if there's an emergency podcast that is needed, we break one out for you during the week, whenever that happens. So there was an emergency podcast that we were kind of playing with the idea, but we knew Sunday would roll around. We'd have a chance to talk about it in full. Zach Levine is no longer going to play this season for the Chicago Bulls. Four to six months, he will be out. Uh, He's going to have foot surgery. And this is the same foot with the fifth metatarsal area that has been inflamed. And the, the, the issue that a lot of people are having, and I really want, I really want us to uh, contextualize this conversation, not only here in the city of Chicago, but a lot of people outside of the city who have been hitting me up and asking me what's really going on or what I think is happening with this Bulls team. And more importantly, with Zach Levine, now that the trade deadline kind of has been blown up by Zach Levine's um, injury, by Zach Levine's pending surgery and Arturis Karnaschovas and Mark Eversley having to, you know, scramble now for the next week or so, trying to put something together that maybe will propel this team forward. Or if the reports were true that AK was looking forward to moving on from Zach Levine, and then he could take a closer and better look, a better evaluation at the talent going forward. Well, he's going to have now the rest of this season, 30 some odd games to do that. But the Zach Levine piece, I think is very important. And in this um, ESPNization, and I have to be very careful how I say that, because I don't want to get in trouble out here, but ES, ESPNization uh, of sports conversation that we've had over the last decade or so where everybody's got a take. Everybody's got uh, points that they're given when uh, they are, you know, have a, a good answer or um, an excellent reply to something. Uh, and shout out to those shows that do that. But I, I think the conversation uh, has devolved around a lot of sports and uh, namely basketball. Uh, Zach Levine, when he came here years ago in the Jimmy Butler trade, uh, I had a chance to work with and also talk to Sam Mitchell, a guy who coached Zach Levine. And we talked about his confidence. We talked about all the skills. And, you know, he assured me that Zach Levine was getting ready to be a, a next level player. It's just the body had to fill out and all those things had to, you know, his game had to mature. He had to mature. But Minnesota knew what they had. And he was coming off of an ACL injury. And when you when you trade Jimmy Butler and you get Zach Levine, you get Chris Dunn and you get what would eventually be Lowry Markin, you thought you had the building blocks of a, a, a young foundation that at least would entertain you while trying to figure out what what they truly were. You fast forward and the year before Lowry marketing is supposed to go. And then we know what happened to Lowry marketing last year's most improved player, uh, an all-star last year. And one of the hotter names on the trade uh, market. When Zach Levine had the reins as a bulls fan, I was sitting there like, okay, got to find out now who this dude is and who the other player is. Is there any two man game is going to be run with these two players? And it wasn't. There weren't. And when I zoomed out and saw what Zach Levine was getting ready to be, and I'll, I'll be the first one to raise my hand, y'all. I thought that Zach Levine was a quote-unquote empty calorie player. I thought he was a guy that was only going to be a, a high-level scorer, and that's about it. And I thought it would take a volume 
you know, a, a volume amount of shots. I thought he would have to be a volume scorer. Well, fast forward to the Jim Boylan era where, you know, he wasn't being developed properly and he was taking a lot of bullets for a team that was just flat out bad and coached poorly. Larry Marketing moves on. He had to go to another stop before he finally found himself in Salt Lake City with the Utah Jazz. Zach Levine kind of held it down, not only on an entertainment level, but on a face of a franchise level where, let's face it, I don't think Zach Levine has ever truly been comfortable being the face of anyone's franchise. I think Zach Levine has a quiet confidence bordering sometimes on arrogance that would rather be in the background and just do his job. And as he started to excel, the moment that Zach Levine went to the Team USA trials and the moment he became an Olympian and then he comes back and sees the roster and knows who he's playing with. This is a guy who found out he belonged on that trip. If he didn't already believe it, he found it out. You had Steve Kerr talking about him. You had Greg Popovich talking about him. Kevin Durant was in awe of the two-way player that he was in those practices. And we saw him, we saw a style of basketball being played by a guy who we think or thought was ready to take that next leap. Then all of a sudden, Zach Levine turns into an efficient, an efficient, potent score. Turns into one of the best shooters in the game. Turns into one of the best catch-and-shoot shooters in the game. And it, there's some names. And shout-out to uh, Elias Schuster, who I believe works for SB Nation. He threw, he threw some stats out there over the, the four years leading into this one. There were only four players who were averaged 25 points per game on 49% shooting from the field and 39% from the three. Four players. One of them's Kyrie Irving. Another one's Kawhi Leonard. I forget who the third was. And the fourth guy was Zach Levine. And Zach Levine had cleared the other three guys by a good 99 games. Zach Levine was playing and playing every single night. And then all of a sudden, the knee injury happens. And it's going into the playoffs. And we know he's hurt. And the Milwaukee Bucks first round was not one that Bulls fans were right home about, not one that anybody on their team thought was a sufficient effort or um, cast them in the most positive lights, but they finally broke that ceiling of getting to the playoffs. And then the max contract conversation comes into play. Now you're talking about a guy who is up for a max, is going to probably get that max from someone else. You can't just let him walk. Arturis Karnaschovas always struck me as a guy who really wasn't all the way in on Zach Levine. And, and, and you don't know who Arturis Karnaschovas is ever really all the way in on because of the way he con- converses about these players. And now when, when, you, when you really sit back and look at this entire year and how Zach Levine has been talked about, and whether it be with the injury and the Bulls winning without him, him coming back and them winning with him, and now him going down again, the conversation hasn't been nuanced or contextualized at all to me. It's either one side or the other. You're either a person who believes Zach Levine is still one of the elite players in the game and just needs a proper runway. You've you've started to corrode this conversation with maybe DeMar DeRozan is in the way. Kobe White's ascension means something as well. This team is stagnant. Um, you know, is, is he the guy down the stretch? All these questions that still have to be answered. And all I'm saying is it doesn't have to be one or the other. The Bulls and the Zach Levine situation, they are separate entities, but they're mirror images of each other. Zach Levine is a player that will wow you on a night-to-night basis. Zach Levine, I also think, is a guy who, let's face it, 
He's shown you what his floor could be defensively and never truly, I think, over these last few years and maybe the last year where he was healthy, never truly tapped into that defensive potential that that is there, but became one of the better scorers in the league, which is, uh, you know, a marketable skill. It's what people pay for. A 25-point-per-game guy is, is, is hard to come by these days. I know there's about 40 guys scoring 20 a game, but once you start to clip off 25 a game, now we're talking about the rare air of scores in the league. But the conversation still is around winning. And for whatever reason, these last few years, these three players, whether it be Vuj, Damar, and Zach, whatever order you want to put them in, who's the big dog, who's the lead dog, and who's the dog that's trailing behind – these three guys have amounted to average to above average basketball winning wise. And it's not just the Lonzo ball thing. Cause we got a big enough sample size post Lonzo ball to show you exactly where this team has been and where they're not going. Now the Kobe white thing is thrown into the mix and Kobe white is the lead guard. Maybe that they've been looking for, but not in the Lonzo ball type of frame where he's going to get the ball to guys and push ahead. And also, you know, throw lobs and all the other things. Lonzo Ball is a completely different player than Kobe White. But with Kobe White's ascension, I think there has been this ricochet of Zach Levine hate that some has been warranted, but not as much as I think I hear. And the the reason why you can go back to when this podcast first started for me, I, I was the first one to say, hey, listen, no matter what you pay Zach Levine, don't pay him and think that he's going to become someone else. Right. Don't pay a guy hoping that he becomes someone else. Pay a guy knowing that the potential track that he is on, this can be the ceiling. This can be the the sky for him. Now, I believe Zach Levine has maxed out where he is going to be talent wise. And that's not a shade. That's not slight. That's not anything that you would think is is detrimental or me being condescending about his game. The dude is an all star caliber player. But right now, Zach Levine is looking at a situation where, hey, and, and for all the reports and everybody out there that's saying that Zach Levine messed around and had this surgery because he knew Detroit was somewhere he didn't want to be, hey, I, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't throw that out. I wouldn't, I wouldn't just, you know, summarily dismiss that at all, at all. Because this whole thing about the value of Zach Levine being down, the injury is what caused the value to be down. And now going forward, you've got three years, I think about $138 million left on a contract that it it can easily and quickly become one of the worst looking deals in the league. If this foot injury, this foot issue persists post-surgery. Now I work with Kendall Gill. He had a stress fracture of his fifth metacarpal uh, when he was, uh, I believe, either at the end of his high school career or at Illinois. And he's talked about how painful it was and how it's a pain tolerance issue and all the things that go into that. My man, Will Purdue, seven footer. Uh, the, The bigger you are, the more worried you are about your feet. I've talked extensively. Uh, with Will about foot problems and what NBA players have to go through. So now that the stuff is coming out that maybe just maybe the Bulls team doctors didn't get a chance to to confer with the clutch sports group or Rich Paul or wh- whoever's managing Zach Levine right now. Yeah, there's there's some schadenfreude afoot. There's there's some things going on here. Zach Levine messed around and had a surgery shortly before the trade deadline, shut himself down, and now the Bulls are left maybe in the lurch. 
what has to happen going from here for me as a Bulls fan is you have to pretend like this thing is going forward without Zach Levine. We do this every Sunday, every Tuesday, every Thursday. It's the Full Gold Podcast, and we appreciate you hanging out with us here on FanDuel TV and the local angle. That's going to do it for this Monday edition of the local angle. We got a loaded week of programming coming your way on FanDuel TV. Ring of wise guys, East Coast bias, Bill and Sal, Cousin Sal's winning weekend. The ringer's got you covered every which way. I hope everybody enjoys their Monday. John Jastrzemski signing off. We'll see you next week. Be good, everybody.